you. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, uh, you're going to need to turn there. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Ecclesiastes. If you don't know where that's at, there's good news. In the front of your Bible, there is a table of contents. You can look that up, and you can find your way there. Uh, I am going to have some scripture on screen, uh, but the, ones, the, uh, the, the main sections that I'm about to read through with you are going to be in Ecclesiastes, and you're going to need to turn there to just double-check that what I'm telling you is, is, is really there, if you care to do that, okay? Um, and then... Uh, if you're a note taker, then uh, you'll see where we're going throughout this. Also, uh, it was my plan to go kind of exhaustive. So that's, that's how I like to roll. Again, if you're new or visiting, uh, I like to take a book of the Bible and then chapter one, verse one, all the way through uh, wherever we're going with that and however long that takes us to get there. And we all go on that ride together. And usually that's great. Um, this time, because we spent time in Galatians, because I had two weeks uh, that, I, that I wasn't preaching. Uh, this is going to be a three-part series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and what we're going to cover is work, uh, wisdom, and worship, okay? And uh, so all of them are going to have this, basically the same kind of titles. Today is we're going to talk about meaningless work. Uh, we're going to talk about meaningless uh, wisdom and meaningless worship. And so hopefully that's enough to satiate your interest, uh, and you can come back and hear, uh, what do you mean? about meaningless work, meaningless wisdom, and meaningless worship, maybe specifically meaningless worship. What do, you, what do you mean about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's not till the third one, so I guess you'll just have to keep coming and, and, and hear about that. Uh, so some, just some quick background. Again, I, I like to do that as we cover new books and as we start new things. And so uh, this book, uh, it's, it's in debate, but I've come down where I, I think that this book was written by King uh, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. I also think that he uh, has crafted this book after uh, he had fallen into sin and, and he had found a repentant heart. And so, uh, yes, he had lots of wisdom. Uh, I don't know what you know about King Solomon. Uh, his kingdom was drawn into idolatry because uh, he had married way too many women, like <laughs> 700 women too many, and, uh, and then concubines also, right? And so he was, uh, he was drawn into sin for the entire nation, and I think at the end of his life, uh, he found a repentant heart and then crafted the book of Ecclesiastes. So that's, that's, in my view, that's where Ecclesiastes come from. There's other commentators out there that will say other things, and because we don't, we don't, we don't have, like, the letters to the, like, the, you know, Paul, the, Paul an apostle to the church in Galatia. We don't have that for this, um, but if you take the time, and I, and I would encourage you to, I always do, I would encourage you to take some time and read through the book of Ecclesiastes on your own, and as you do that, you will see why many, not just myself, think, okay, this is probably Solomon who is the author of this, okay? Um, so that's kind of the author. Uh, I don't know the date that it was written, and uh, we're going we're, to, we're, I'm, I'm going to cherry pick a little bit as we go through, which is not normally my thing. So we're taking, we're taking an expositional topical look at the book of Ecclesiastes with those three topics. And so for you this morning, what you'll need to know, and if you're a note taker, you have this. If not, I'm about to tell you, so you can write this down, or you can just try to remember. If you're turning in your own book, in your own Bible, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 2 uh, for a couple of uh, sections of verses. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 3, and we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 4, and then I'm going to get into my message. Does that make sense? So I will tell you for each one of those sections, give you a second to turn there, and then I'll read. You can follow along, or you can just listen, and then the rest of the scriptures that I'm going to use for support, or the rest of the sermon are going to be on screen, and that's how it's probably going to be for the rest of this series for these three-parters. Does it make sense? Okay. When I was a kid, I had a hamster. Smooth transition, right? 
Anybody else have a rodent as a pet when they were growing up of any kind? Okay, great. So if you're familiar with hamsters or rats or mice, yes, people actually have those as pets. Whether you feel about that one way or the other, I don't know what to tell you, but they've got them. Okay, so there's hamsters. Uh, I had a hamster. In my hamster cage, I had something called a hamster wheel. I also had something called a hamster ball. Are we all familiar with those kind of things? They have giant hamster balls now where people can actually get in, and I would love to do that someday. Uh, but until that day, when I was a kid, I had a hamster, and this hamster would get on this wheel in its cage, and it would run, and it would run, and it would run, and it would run, and then would get off, and it had went nowhere. And there's a movie that they just had out with called, I think it's Pets 2, and the hamster's like getting psychological help, and he has the same problem. <laughs> the issue is, don't we sometimes feel the same way? We run, and we run, and we run, and we don't get anywhere. Well, that's something that society has deemed called the rat race. Are you familiar with that terminology? So I've looked this up, and so the great experts at Wikipedia, this is what they have said. Are you ready for the definition? I know that's very scholarly. This is what they said. A rat race is an endless, self-defeating, or pointless pursuit. The phrase equates humans to rats attempting to earn a reward such as cheese in vain. It may also refer to a competitive struggle to get ahead financially or routinely. And of course, that's what we think, right? The rat races, everybody's involved in it, we're just going along in this world and trying to do the best to get ahead. The term is commonly associated with an exhausting, repetitive lifestyle that leaves no time for relaxation or enjoyment. That's not what I want for you, and more importantly than that, that's not what God wants for you. Maybe that's news to you. See, in our culture today, there's usually two ends of the spectrum. And I'm just going to be very bold with my... There's, there's work addicts. We call them workaholics. And then there's just lazy leeches. Now, hopefully, all of us are somewhere in between. That's what I'm going to ask for you to become. If that's not you, I think that's where God wants you. But before we jump into the text... This, the question is, how should God's people work in a society filled with wickedness, oppression, and envy? So how are we to work? How, how, do, how are we as Christians, how are we to work to make our work not meaningless? That's the question. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are blessed by you this day. We praise you for your wonderful works for they are evident to all mankind, even to those who choose not to honor you as God. We thank you that your work is good and true and that it will never pass away. Father, we confess that even so, we ourselves often question your work. We seek to have merit in our own work. We ask that you would forgive us for our folly and our vanity. God, we thank you that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has fulfilled all of the law on our behalf. And it is by his work that we are made whole. He has himself said, it is finished. And so therefore, we pray that you might be merciful and gracious to us this day. That you would speak to us by your scripture. That you would change our hearts and our minds to work and to view our work rightly as you would have us to do. It is in your name and for your glory that we do pray. 
And all God's people said, amen. So first text that I want to take you to that you can follow along in your copy of God's word. And I just want to remind you of how blessed you are to actually have a copy of God's word. Do you even know that? I think we so often take that for granted. And if you don't have a copy of God's word and you want one, I'm going to give you one today. If you come see me after church and you want one, I'm, I have one for you. So Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 11, okay? That's what it says. I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools for which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Have I given away why I think this is Solomon so far? And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Drop down a little farther to verse 18. Starting, and I hated all my toil with which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will be master of all from which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything he enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and great evil. What has man from all his toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and the striving after the wind. Turn to chapter 3. Find your way to verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen that the business of God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God has done. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. If 
find your way to chapter 4. This is the last large section as we get into uh, the exposition and my application for us this morning. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. All his uh, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So here's some things that stood out to me by this. Now, I'm taking a, what, what I would like to you know, uh, very um, academically call a smattering of texts for you this morning from Ecclesiastes, right? Now, and I would encourage you to, to read through the rest of Ecclesiastes and look for some key words, words like, toil, okay? Uh, That's this word for work. Another word for work is, you know, the word work. And so you can look for works and word for toil through there. And And I would just encourage you to continue to read through Ecclesiastes. But from my study, I'm just going to leave that cap off. From my study, here are the things that I want to tell you that I think God's word is telling us. And I think the other scriptures will back it up as well. The first thing is this, work is a gift of God. So if you're a note taker, there's your first blank. Work is a gift of God. And you might be there, you might be here this morning saying, not my work, pastor. And I'm here to tell you, yes, brother, sister, even your work. Now in our society, we tend to think of some work as less than others, don't we? And that's unfortunate. And so if you're in this category, uh, don't be offended by what I'm about to say, because you need to understand that I think of no work as better than any other work, just different. But perhaps your work is one of facility cleanliness, a.k.a. janitorial. Some of us would think, hey, cleaning toilets is a kind of job that is below me. I want to ask you the question, do you have the ability to do such a job? Because if you do, praise the Lord. He's given you fingers and toes. He's given you eyes to see and ears to hear. He's given you limbs that can move. Jesus himself, the one who is the creator and sustainer of all the universe, did he not wash feet? And yet we ourselves think that we are too good for some forms of labor. Work is a gift of God. Look with me, or look up here, if you will, to Ecclesiastes 2.24. It says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. You see, God created work. I'm reading this amazing book. When I'm done with it, I'll tell you the title because I'm not sure if it's amazing yet. I've got to finish it and then I'll decide if it's worth for me telling you about it. But in this book that I'm going through, that I hope you will, it helps me and I hope that it'll help you to understand that God created work and I think all of eternity we will be filled with work. Now, the difference is the work that I think we'll do for all eternity will be work and not toil. And here's the difference. God created work. Let, let, me, let me prove it to you. You ready? Genesis. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 2.5. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to do what? To just eat the fruit, right? He took him in the garden to put up a hammock. He put him in the garden to watch the sunset. 
He put him in the garden to, no, no, no. What did he put him in the garden for? He put him in the garden to work and to keep it. And by the way, this is pre-fall, okay? So what this means is, is that God, when he said everything is good, he was including labor. He was including work. The difference is toil is the thorns and the thistles, right? Toil is when my wife gets poison ivy from weeding a garden, right? That's the toil. The work of weeding the garden is part of her pleasure because then she's later going to receive a produce. It's something she looks forward to. We don't have uh, poison ivy in our garden. This was somebody else's. And I said, stop being so serving. No, I'm just kidding. So I want to ask you, since work is a gift of God, and, and I could spend more time proving this to you, but just quite frankly, Genesis 2.15 says that he put it there. This is before the fall. He said it was good, so my argument's over. So here's the question I have for you. What's your attitude towards work? I find, personally, okay? I find personally, and I know I'm biased, I believe I have the best job in the world, bar none. But when I wake up in the morning and I have work to do, I don't always wake up like some kind of weirdo. I don't always wake up like, you know, zippity doo dahs. I, that's, that's not, I wish, I wish that I could stand up here and tell you that. But the truth of the matter is, as much as I love you all, and as much as I seek to be sanctified, sometimes I have a bad day and I just, I want to get back into bed. Can I get an amen from anybody else? And so, so here's the thing. But what is our attitude towards work? Because we need to cultivate, this is the idea of renewing of our minds, right? Scripture tells us that God made work and he made us for it. Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes, the man who has had more wisdom of everybody other than Jesus says that we should enjoy our toil. This also I saw was from the hand of God. So the first thing I see as far as meaningless work is our work is meaningless when we don't understand it's a gift from God. When you just go through your day thinking that work is just a drudgery, a torture. And by the way, you can have a really, oh, you know what show I love? Dirty Jobs. You guys remember that show? That's, that's been gone for a while. Uh, that guy, and I've, now that we've got streaming, you know, you can watch it whenever you want, right? And, and, and I do sometimes. It's one of my favorite shows. And I love that show because it helps me, again, think about my own job. And I'm like, man, I'm glad that I'm not in, like, a coal chute shoveling coal all day. Or I'm thankful that I'm not at, like, a, what did they call it? They had some name for it, but it's a garbage sorter. I'm glad I'm not at a garbage sorter sorting through garbage all day, you know? Uh, so, listen, work is a gift from God. I hope that this, and I hope the renewing of our minds will continue to help us think of work as a gift. Second point. You are to do your work unto the Lord. Why? Well, because it's a gift from him to you. And also, that is why he made us in the first place. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work that land. And we are to do that to his glory because he's worthy. So again, part of the question is, do we see work as a drudgery because of who we're doing it for? Are you coming in and punching the time clock, right? Just so Bob gets off your back. 
Or are you coming in and punching the time clock just so, you know, Sarah at home has some money to buy some, some shoes with? Or are you coming in to punch the time clock because you were beautifully and wonderfully made and God has put you in a mission field and you have hands, fingers, and toes and you have the ability to do this and so you're going to do this to God's glory because he is the divine creator who has given you this gift, who's given you this income, who's given you this place of appointment and all he wants for you to do is show up and be a light. I mean, what is our attitude towards this, right? So are you to, you are to do your work under the Lord. And I have some scripture for that too. Colossians, no, Ecclesiastes 3.22. I forgot I changed my order for you. So, so I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. What can bring, uh, who can bring him to see what will be after him? You know, I think one of the snares of youth is always looking at the grass on the other side of the fence. Does that make sense? One of the snares of youth is always thinking, man, there's something bigger, there's something better, there's something more important that I can be doing, and so I'm going to strive for that. And I also, not only just youth, I think that's part of our American culture, that we're always looking for that next best thing, and when we're always looking for that next best thing, we often aren't focused on the here and the now and how to, how to uh, maximize our vapor in the now. Now, here's the text that you thought I was going to put up, and you're right. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see, God has uniquely gifted you. And we don't like to hear this so much. He, he has both uniquely gifted you and uniquely stunted you. How about that? And we don't like to hear that part. Let me just reveal to you my sinful heart for a moment and see if you can relate. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you what I'm about to tell you, but that doesn't change its truth. I'm happy to tell you that since then, God has done a work in my heart and that is no longer the way that I feel. So just, you need to hear that before I tell you this or you're gonna be sad. So just one more time, God has changed my heart, but what I'm about to tell you was true. When I first got to Elgin Bible Church, I did not necessarily know if this was my lifelong ministry or if this was merely a step on the way to better things. And that is, that is how I viewed my pastorate, my pulpit, my ministry at first, because to be frank, I was just made for more. Do you hear the pride, the arrogance, the lack of love? This is, this is Jesus's bride we're talking about. I mean, I know how I'm going to feel when I give my daughter away. And it's going to be, you better be good or I can do jail ministry, right? Like, I've said that before. And I'm sort of, like, I'm sort of joking, I guess, right? So, like, by God's grace, we won't ever have to find out kind of thing. But, but God has gifted us, and he's also divinely stunted us. And here's what it says. This is your lot. So I saw there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. 
So God has divinely changed my heart to say, you know what? Those things that I thought were like bigger and better things, there is nothing bigger and better than caring for God's bride. Amen. Amen. And so God is glorified as we do our work unto him. And so some of us maybe today, we just need to be reminded, like you may think that you were made for more, but maybe, just maybe, God knows better. Maybe, just maybe God knows that that you are made for the position that you're in right now, for the time that you're in right now, so that you could do the work that you're meant to do for him right now. Just maybe God is sovereign over that too. Next point that I have for you is work is to be for us, not us for work. Ecclesiastes 2.10 is where I want to take you as a proof text, but this is an easy one to write down. So uh, work is to be for us, not us for work. Ecclesiastes 2.10 says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Mark 2.27 And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift for you. Your day off is a gift to you. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. What does that have to do with this? Well, I'm talking about, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. So keep your mental finger on this, okay? 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So work is to be for us, not us for work. You see, work is to be for us because it is the means by which we are to provide for our family, and it is the means by which we are to support one another in this congregation. Ecclesiastes, in just a little while, and I don't know if we're going to read that text individually, but it's there. You can look it up. It talks about it's better to have two rather than one, right? And the reason it's better to have two is because if one falls down, the other one is there to pick them up, right? Or if they're cold, the two, the one, they're just going to freeze. The two, they could keep one another warm, right? It talks about a threefold cord is not easily broken. So what it's talking about is this age-old idea of strength in numbers. The, way, the reason that you are gifted two work in part is so that you can support ministry. The reason that Philip Scurring is in the Amazon translating the Bible, quite frankly, is because you, we are unwilling to go, and secondarily, because we are willing and able to send him financial assistance so that he can do that ministry. So work is to be for us, not us for work. We are not to be a slave to our labor. You ought to be taking time off. But you also ought to be understanding that the whole point to your work is ultimately not for your retirement. It's for for kingdom building. See, work is for us, which also means that, by the way, biblically, retirement is, is when you die. Thank you. And, and by the way, let me tell you this. Your retirement is fully funded, okay? So like the street, they're going to use gold as pavement for your 401k. You need not worry, okay? So like it doesn't matter if you have a penny left in the bank. When you die, you're rich. So work is to be for us, not us for work. 
So even after retirement, there is still work for you to do because God has uniquely gifted you in ways that you can work. Let me share one with you. There is a beloved sister in Christ who is retired. But every single Thursday, she comes and she sits and she prays for people who come in and receive, you know, toiletry goods. Now, you all pay for that by your work because work is for us, not us for work. So you do that to provide for others in the community. And her work is simply being here to pray for them, to greet them, and to help them get their stuff. Second to last point. You will never be satisfied by your work. Now, very, again, very personally, um, we, we have, uh, I have a brother in Christ who took some time out of his busy life uh, to show me a new skill recently. So my wonderful wife allowed me to buy a, a table saw just recently. And so what I'm doing for her is, is uh, because of this whole project, she has stuff that she, whatever, it doesn't matter all that. So I'm, I'm learning how to build uh, cabinet doors, okay? I uh, never knew how to build cabinet doors before. A great brother in Christ took some time out of his, his life to show me how to, how, to, how to build a cabinet door. So I'm building cabinet doors. Uh, I'm not happy with how they turned out. I'm, I'm just not. I'm not happy with how they turned out. And I told him, I said, don't make fun of me. Come, come see the doors that you taught me how to build. I built them. Don't make fun of me. And he was like, hey, man, you're doing good. You know, like you've, you, you just learned this skill. You're, you're doing the skill. Here's something I can guarantee you, though. The brother in Christ who knows that skill, who taught me that skill, who's proficient in that skill, he does the same thing, and then he looks at his work, and he says, I'm not happy with this work. You see, we are never satisfied by our work because we are oftentimes are our own worst enemy. Every Sunday, every single Sunday, without fail, I will go home and I will ask my wife, how was the message today? And she'll tell me whatever she wants to tell me, and then I'll say, I don't think it was very good. And here's why. And here's my list of reasons why. I don't think my message was very good today. I, you know, I, I botched scripture or I, I wasn't as Christ-centered as I want to be or I didn't have as good inflection or I was, man, I was a downer today. Even I felt depressed after that. And like, and there's, there's all kinds of reasons why I don't like what I'm doing. I'm never satisfied. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but we are never satisfied by our work. Now, it's not only that we are all in our own little weird way perfectionists for whatever our pro- proclivities are. But also, did you know that scripture actually tells us that? So now, in the, we're going back a little bit, but Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. If that's not true, then we would only have one movie, and one book, and one song, because then we'd all be satisfied. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 2.11 says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes 4.8, One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. 
His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. That's, I, this is what I think of when I think of these, these people that are like multi-Rockefeller. I, I don't know if this is true, so you'll have to Wikipedia this. Somebody somewhere, I think it was Rockefeller, said their biggest, their biggest thing before they died was that they couldn't make like one more, one more deal or something like that. I, I might have just made that up. <laughs> Somebody somewhere said that. And it's true, because I just said that. But Ecclesiastes 6, 7 says, too, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. I can tell you where I know this is true. I know this is true of me when it comes to my own heart of sin. You know, the lusts of our heart, and I just don't, I, I don't mean like just sexual lust, but we are never satisfied with what this world has to give. I, I mean, I go out and I have a really good meal somewhere and I rejoice in the goodness of that meal, but you know what happens the next day? I'm hungry again. I go and I see a good movie and I'm, I'm glad that I saw that good movie. That was a cool movie. I'm, I'm glad to do that. But, but you know what? Next day or next week or whatever, I'm, I'm bored again. I mean, I come to church on Sunday morning and I'm with my family and I worship the Lord and then later that day, I, I don't feel very close to God again. Genesis 3, 9. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken and you are, you are dust, and, dust you shall, and to dust you shall return. You see, we will never be satisfied by our work because we were, we were never made, we were never built in order to have satisfaction in our work. Never. And, and I don't care if you're the best sculptor, the best painter, the best pianist, any of those things, you're never going to find satisfaction there ever because you were never ever made to. Your satisfaction is to be in Christ. In, in heaven, in your home to come. That is what we're looking forward to, always and forever. All of this is just like, this is training wheels. This is training wheels. Work can't bring joy, it can't bring hope, it can't bring peace. Look at Solomon. He said, I mean, think about this. He was like the Elon Musk of his day plus Albert Einstein, like all rolled into one, right? He's like super wise, super rich. He's like, I had been your, I mean, he was, you know, making it rain everywhere. He had whatever he wanted. He told himself, I denied myself zero pleasures. I had everything. Back then, I mean, he had uh, chariots with spinners, right? Like he had the whole thing. But he says, work can't bring joy, it can't bring hope, it can't bring peace. At the end, I have learned I'm still going to die. It's all vanity. I can't take anything with me. So we're doing all this work, we're doing all this labor, we've amassed all this wealth and all this retirement, and then we leave them to kids who might be fools. That's what he, sa that's what he says here. So he said, we're doing all this thing to leave an inheritance. And then they might end up like some kind of a president's kid or something. I know, ooh, whatever. The truth hurts. We are called to enjoy, so this is the last, this is the last point. 
We are called to enjoy our work and to glorify God in it. Did you know that? If work is a gift and we can do it unto the Lord, that you can enjoy your work, and I don't, I don't care what it is. You can work at a slaughterhouse and do that work unto the joy of the Lord and rejoice in it and glorify God in it. And I'm going to tell you how right now. You can be thankful that it is no longer the blood of bulls and goats that covers sin, but instead it's the blood of Christ that's once and for all. And you can remind yourself of the absolute repetitive nature of the old law system and what those priests had to do all the time and how how they would come home smelling just like you from the slaughterhouse, doing the same thing you're doing from the slaughterhouse, house and praise the Lord that has been done once and for all in Christ Jesus for you. But we are called to enjoy our work and to glorify God in Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than they be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is a gift to man. This is God's gift to man. Proverbs, also written largely by King Solomon. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble uh, with it. Better is a little with righteousness than great uh, uh, revenues with injustice. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. You're called to enjoy your work because, by the way, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So the work that you do in Christ Jesus is actually Christ's work. That you are doing the works of Christ as you are enjoying your work and glorifying God in it. And by the way, like I already said, our reward is waiting for us. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. His work is finished. Nothing can be added to it, not even your work nor anything taking from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. This is, don't miss this. That which is already has been Jesus. That which is to be already has been Jesus for all eternity. And God seeks what has been driven away. That's man. You see, God is the one who is doing the work in you. Are, are, are we called to live out the fruit of the Spirit? We just talked about that. Yes, absolutely. Should we be seeking to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? Yes, absolutely. Should we be seeking to be obedient and faithful? Should we be doing the works of reading our Bible and spending time in prayer and giving to the church and, and caring for the needy? and caring for? Should we be doing all those things? Yes, absolutely. But here's the other part. God seeks what has been driven away. That is God doing the work in you. So in closing, the sinful man works out of envy and covetousness of his neighbor. 
Though he seeks pleasure in his possessions and accomplishments, he is never satisfied, and in the end will lead only to emptiness. He also, at the end of his life, will discover that he can take nothing with him, and he must leave it all that he has to another. If not that, that would be the work addict, right? The workaholic. If not that, then usually, like I began, then the sinful man, understanding that life is short and that work is hard, will decide that he, instead of wasting his time working, will, will, uh, he should simply fold his hands and live life off the work of others, seeking to enjoy whatever he can in the meantime. But I ask the question to you, but how should Christians make sure that their work isn't meaningless? Well, this is how. Those who have been saved by grace understand that we are created for and gifted to work, that our work is to be done to the glory and praise of God, that our work is to be a means by which we are blessed and a blessing to others, and that our joy, hope, and pleasure is to be found in one day receiving the imperishable inheritance that we ourselves could never earn, but rather is a gift of the completed work on the cross by Christ. So ultimately, I'm going to skip Matthew. I'm going to go to Timothy. And Timothy says, as for the rich in this present age, which by the way, American is you. For the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Why? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So how do you make your work not meaningless? Bottom line is, allow Christ to work in you and do it for the glory of God, whatever your work is. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do praise you. We do thank you that it is by your good grace that you have gifted us for labor. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. None of us is exactly like the other. We thank you that in your sovereign wisdom that you have given us all kinds of labors for this life. We use them both to provide for our family and to provide for our church. But you use them in us to sanctify us and to change us and to help us to be more like Christ. Help us then to do our work unto you, to glorify you with all that we do. And that we will constantly and forever look forward to the day where you will say, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter into my rest. It's in your name that we pray that our work would not be meaningless. Amen.